we can. I think we can add it after the fact. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Add it after the fact. All right. So our first question that we got was, and excuse me, I'm reading them off my phone because I can't have it open on my Skype. Um, is burning fat and building muscle at same time? At same time, with a positive nitrogen balance, a lie. And I think that just requires... make everybody feel horrible, and they don't want to ask questions because they're going to make fun of. Just going to make fun Can of. Can you proofread this question before Ryan kills me? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that requires an explanation of what nitrogen balance is. Um, any takers on explaining how we actually get nitrogen balance, how we arrive at the figure that is nitrogen balance? Because I think people say it a lot, and they're like, "I eat protein." And there's nitrogen, a la nitrogen balance. So does that, do either of you want right? to explain what that is? What's up? Hector's so the chemist, right? Yeah. Let's hear it, Hector. What is nitrogen balance all about? Well, I mean, it's whether you're in a state of, uh, you know, having more protein than you're pretty much either burning or excreting or somewhat, because the way that your body's getting rid of um, – nitrogen is is through the nitrogen cycle and ammonia and stuff and you pretty much just pee it out um so pretty much if you're in a positive nitrogen balance you're just taking in more amino acids and more proteins than are necessary for your bodily functions that's all that means now i think what he's getting at is 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 it possible to i think i might be wrong but the question he might be getting at is is it possible to build muscle and burn fat if you're under the conditions that are necessary to burn fat uh, I.e. if you're hypocaloric, you know, can you have a positive nitrogen balance if you are hypocaloric? Because by definition, you are taking in less nutrients than your body needs to be sustained for the day. But there's a difference between having enough energy, right, and having enough protein in your diet. To a point, obviously, you're, those, those two things are going to kind of combat because if you're trying to get, uh, you know, contest prep lean, your calories are going to be really, really low. So the point where you're possibly not going to be taking in as much protein as is necessary to build new tissue or um, to maybe even sustain the amount of muscle that you currently have. But uh, for the average person who's possibly asking this, who's just looking to get a six pack or, you know, get sub 10% for summer or something, um, I think it's entirely possible to build muscle and burn fat in the early stages. I mean, do you guys, what's your input on that? Yeah, I think yeah. there's a I think there's a couple subsets of the weightlifting population that can actually do that where they are building muscle and losing fat at the same time. Your ultra beginner or the person that you're describing where they just kind of want to lose like five pounds of fat, like trim up, slim up for like a high school reunion or a wedding or something like that. And then you get into the anabolic steroid users as well, where anabolic steroids, correct me if I'm wrong here, just increase your nitrogen efficiency. So you can do more with less. Yeah. So they work through uh, several different ways. The, you know, it's, it's weird because the, what we think about building muscle in terms of uh, lifting weights and eating protein is uh, a, a actually a slightly different mechanism than the way that, you know, something like testosterone will, will produce muscle gains because you have all these pathways and there's certainly some, yeah. you know, interrelationships there for sure. But that being said, you know, you have what, uh, like TSC2 or something. Yeah. You, well, you have like, you know, potentially muscle damage and then just mechanical tension. That's going to produce all these pathways that then, you know, elicit the muscle cell to pretty much grow, but you know, testosterone and stuff, that's going to act on a specific receptor, uh, and downstream, they might be the same pathways, but it's, it's kind of, uh, 
separate initially upstream, if that makes sense. Yeah. So eating food, lifting weights, both ways to increase mTOR signaling. And so you're saying testosterone or exogenous hormone use can signal the same pathway, but the way you arrive at that endpoint is different. It's different. Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, like that, so, uh, the, one paper so the beginner that. and the steroid user are going to arrive at that fat loss and muscle gain at the same time. They're going to yeah. both get there, but the way that they're going to get there is very, very different. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to differentiate that between, you know, uh, a natural who's maybe in the beginning stages, uh, who can probably get decently lean and still build muscle. Uh, and you know, it's even a whole other story. Uh, I mean, you know, Paul and Ryan, you guys are both bodybuilders, or, you know, Ryan, you, you've been pretty much successful in bodybuilding. Um, when someone is near that, and I hate to say the word genetic potential, if somebody's really, really developed, um, it's likely they're probably not going to be at a stage where they can build muscle and lose fat, uh, to any significant degree. No. Yeah. Yeah, once you're in that advanced state, once you're at that five, six, even upwards of like 10 years of resistance training experience, absolutely. the idea that you can build muscle and lose fat at the same time is, to use this guy's own words, that, then it becomes a lie. Then it's a point where <laughs> there needs to be very, very specific nutritional periodization that says, listen, between the months of August to February, I'm in a specific mass gain phase, and then from February to whatever it is, May, then I'm in a very specific fat loss phase. And those are my only goals for those phases. Exactly. I think even with uh, like steroid users too, when you hit that advanced stage, um, and then genetics are a part of that too, and their, their individual response and, you know, doses and stuff. Uh, even that for them, like if their aim is to build muscle and lose fat at the same time, it's such a slow process. You like, it's almost negligible. Like you can't even notice it or see it happening or in the end you're like, Oh, like, did they even get bigger? Like, I can't really tell, you know? Yeah. You know, what, what might be an even, uh, you know, a pretty in, intuitive example because, uh, you know, a lot of people have been athletes in high school and college and stuff. And it's like, if you run a 15 minute mile and you want to get that down to 10 minutes, you're dropping off five minutes. You can do that in, two, three months of training, you know, and at the same time, you could still lift weights and get stronger. But if you run a five minute mile and you're trying to just chop off 30 seconds off that, you're not going to be able to do that and increase your squat by a hundred pounds, you know, because those, those divergent ways of getting to those two goals. And once you're already so, so advanced at one, same thing, if you're, you know, trying to squat six, 700 pounds, chances are your sprint time is not going to decrease. You're not going to get any faster. You're probably going to get slower because you're at such a high level already. It takes, it takes so much more to do those, to get those small incremental increases and, and losing body fat and building muscles at a certain point, it's the same exact thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I think two, one, what about a, just a hypothetical? I don't mean to cut you off, Paul, no, but a hypothetical, um, what about someone who, let's say they've got a background in purely like bro powerlifter training, very, very low volume, very, very high intensity, and they're at like a moderate body fat, let's say a 20% body fat, but they've got eight years of training experience in that specific style of training. If that individual switched over to bodybuilder hypertrophy oriented training, do you think that's an individual that could build muscle mass and lose body fat at the same time? I think potentially, dude. I mean, you know, and I'm assuming we're talking about somebody who 
didn't spend a ton of time doing a lot of the like accessory stuff like lat like yeah. they, they probably have underdeveloped like medial lats and certain muscle groups that i would say don't have the same number of years of experience if that makes sense yeah yeah so but i wouldn't expect it to happen at a large degree i mean these smaller muscles like how much are they going to grow you know they're not going to add pounds and pounds and pounds of lean tissue Probably. Because I, I saw yeah. I saw Shelby Starnes posted today or yesterday, I forget when the post was from, and he basically said that early on in your career, you should just focus on getting as strong as possible. Focus on the core movements and get as strong as you possibly can, and then later on in your career, Glad you brought um, that up. transition over. So that kind of made me think of that. Because I know, I, I when I read that, I instantly thought that you would disagree because you have a different view, right, where probably early on you don't want to be as strong as you possibly can because that makes a lot of your work suck like when you have a when 70 percent of your squat is in the 400 pounds and so now you're doing like sets of eight or ten with you know 450 or something like that like that's miserable yeah i think it depends i think it depends on the end goal so if your goal is five years from now let's say you bring on a client who's 16 years old and he says, when I'm in my twenties, I want to be a world-class powerlifter. You start him when he's in his 16, in his teenage years by getting him as big as possible to set him up later in life to be as strong as possible. So I guess I kind of agree and disagree with Shelby there. I think you need to kind of define what you're saying by strength. Does he mean like relative strength? Like you should get as strong as possible in the 16 or six to 15 repetition range. Or does he mean you should push your one RM as high as possible? Because I think it's the former that he actually means, not the latter. Yeah, it's just weird because he used the term powerlifter. And I almost kind of wonder, does he actually mean like get really fucking strong or just proficient with basic core lifts? I think he means the second. (laughs) Huh? I think he means the second one. Yeah, where you should get relatively strong for your end goal in those specific core movements and then transfer that over um, to bodybuilding style training. But I, yeah, I can't. I can't imagine that he means that you should get your squat to 800 pounds before you consider any bodybuilding training. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Well, you look at someone, look at someone like Ronnie, Ronnie Coleman, and that's actually the exact trajectory that he took, where he started out early on in his life powerlifting, had an 800 or whatever pound deadlift, and then switched over, and it seemed to work very well for him. But I think that Ronnie Coleman is one... Yeah, Ronnie Coleman, I don't think, is the example that you want to look at there for your average bodybuilder, your natural bodybuilder, whatever you want to talk about. Now, let me me ask you this, guys. Um, And this is just observational. I really don't have anything to to go off this. It seems to me that bodybuilders who bodybuild for a couple years and then go into powerlifting tend to do better than powerlifters who then go into bodybuilding. And I think that's because building muscle takes so long and it's just such a big contributor to, you know, your capacity for strength, not, not your current strength at the moment, but just your capacity to get stronger. Um, that if you spend five or six years building up a lot of muscle tissue, it's going to be a lot easier to then condition that muscle tissue to be better via, you know, better movement patterns, maybe some neural adaptations, things like rate coding, which can happen a lot faster than muscle growth versus a power lifter who has spent several years, perfecting technique, which is useful for hypertrophy to an extent, and, you know, in terms of actually targeting the intended muscle and staying injury free. 
But if you've been powerlifting for six years, it's going to take you a lot longer to build enough muscle uh, to be considered, you know, proficient at bodybuilding. At least that's my opinion. What do you guys think? I don't know. I I tend to agree with that. I tend to agree with that. If you take someone who is, who has a ton of muscle mass and then you put them into powerlifting to where for only eight to 12 weeks, whatever it may be, they just have to basically teach that muscle to exert more force via both intra and intermuscular coordination, basically teach them movements and then teach the muscle to produce a lot of force. I think they'll have a lot more success than someone who uh, goes the opposite direction where they're extremely strong. They're a 700 pound squatter. And it's like, all right, it's time to squat at, it's time to squat eight sets of eight at 70% of your one RM. It's okay. Well, 70% of my one RM is 495. It's 225 kilos. Like my knees are just going to explode. So in the yeah. case of the power lifter, if the power lifter actually wanted to have sex, <laughs> I wanted to have sex, <laughs> wanted to have success in uh-huh. bodybuilding, it might be in his best advantage, his or her best advantage to intentionally take time off from training, get weaker, and then come back to training when they're weaker and start their hypertrophy training. Because if they start their hypertrophy training at their absolute strongest, they're just going to snap in half, which is why I think a lot of powerlifters end up breaking when they transition to these hypertrophy phases. Yeah, all, yeah. Of my, all of my powerlifters, when they transition to hypertrophy phases, I'm like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take 80 to 85% of your max. That's your new 1RM that you program off of. We're going to yeah. do sets of 10, and they're going to seem relatively easy, but they're going to be at a 1 to 4 RIR, and it's going to be enough to stimulate hypertrophy. It's not going to be the usual grinders that beat you down into the ground work yeah. that you're used to with powerlifting, but this is the stuff that's actually going to be productive. See, that's interesting because... I would almost, so when I, when I transition a powerlifter to, you know, the, the starting phases of their macro cycle, where basically we're just building on working new tissue. Um, I, I keep the specificity extremely low for that reason, you know, because if somebody's doing eight with 70% and that's, you know, 450 pounds, that is going to beat them up a lot. But I feel like we can get just as big of a hypertrophic stimulus by transitioning to a movement that they're not familiar with and allows them to maybe not as much stimulus, but damn close with a lot less wear and tear because they have to use less load. You know, people like to compare 400 pounds on the squat to 400 pounds on the leg press. Not exactly, not equivocal by any means, you know? Yeah, I agree. Just as, it's as simple as switching from a back squat to a front squat or from a back squat back. to a hack squat, switching a deadlift to a hex bar deadlift or a trap bar deadlift, whatever you want to call it. Paul even likes to use rack pulls, right, Paul? Mm, <laughs> I don't know, man. Um, I think a lot of it's a volume, like a lot of these guys too, when they do have such like crazy squats, you can generally give them a lot less volume, you know, do you think like maybe sometimes some of these guys, you may be hitting them with too much volume, kind of giving them what, uh, like starting at what you think most bodybuilders would use versus like maybe seeing how they just handle, um, like 10 sets a week or something like that. So finish thing, finishing them in like week four of a program with like six by eight when they could have been fine with like three by eight. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I think that's, that's a good point. Yeah. I think a good strategy um, that I use, I don't know if you guys have done this is uh, right as they're finishing up, you know, a peaking cycle and they're going into those high repetitions, which they're going to hate. It's going to be awful. You know, when you're used to doing doubles and now you got to do a set of 15, it's about the worst thing in the world. Um, I actually have uh, done like a, a, I guess you could almost call it a mental cycle because it's a three week intro, you know, where we're starting off at something that's like an RP five at 70% and we're slowly adding repetitions 
given that they can tolerate it until they're doing 70% for a set of eight or 10. And they're like, yeah, this is fine. You know, I've spent three weeks. And a lot of athletes don't want to do that because you know how they are. They want to do the productive work now, but they don't understand, hey, look, this really small period is setting you up to be able to do more productive work later. Does that make like sense? That After the first week, <laughs> they they thank you for it, you know? Like their yeah. first set of eight after doing doubles or singles, they're like, okay, yeah, I kind of think I could go home now after like two sets. Yeah, of yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I like that idea of doing a lot of stuff that's even more sub max than usual. Because if you think yeah. about like what you said from switching over to heavy doubles to eights, like just from switching doubles to eights, that's already a huge nov a, a novel stimulus. So why yeah. make them take that all the way to RP seven or eight? Just because the literature says, okay, you got to take it to a seven or an eight for it to be productive. Well, they're used to twos. Let's switch over to eights. Let's keep it at an RPE five. That's enough of a stimulus for them where they're still going to be able to grow. We can keep the volume low and the risk reward is really, really in favor of reward rather than risk. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a good idea. I mean, a lot of those guys too, like if you set them at a weight, that's like an RPE five, like their second set is probably going to jump to like a seven anyway. Because oh, yeah. used to how much it burns and the pump that they have in their quads and when they're doing squats or whatever yeah. they're doing. Yeah. Like a lot of it, um, sometimes I will just jump them up, but, and I'll put them at a decent um, intensity, but I'll just give them like two sets for their main movement. Yeah. 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 That's that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Because you really have to focus on building that work capacity. It's hard to breathe even through a set of eight once you're used to doubles. You know, you start thinking this is just four doubles. That's what I'm going to think about this. (laughs) I'm going to do two. Rest for 30 seconds, do two again, and just keep doing that until I get through this set. It's exhausting. It's a so wonder what that does for you mentally, though. Oh, it's awful. Like yeah. <laughs> I know you've had that before, though, where you're used to twos, and then you're, like, bracing for your sixth rep, and you're throwing up in your mouth, yeah. and you're like, oh, my God, <laughs> yeah. I still have to do this two more times. Holy shit. <laughs> just I, I remember your chest is fucking... Yeah. It was, uh, it was in the middle of um, a pretty low-volume block. I was... I was lifting around 80 to 90%. So not, you know, not anything crazy. Uh, but I had the idea of uh, this guy's new BFR straps. And I was like, oh man, I, I should do BFR uh, squats with these. Like I'm really excited. And I remember I did BFR squats and 60 repetitions later, um, I like within five minutes, I was on the ground, I near puking, couldn't breathe. I thought I was going to die. Um, I did BFR squats with slingshot wraps once. And it like hurt while I was going, but I didn't, I was like, ah, it just kind of hurts. Like, well, whatever <laughs> I pull them off and my inner thighs are chafed to the point where they're bleeding down my legs. Oh my God. I have oh my blood God. going. Yeah. So like blood, sweat and tears. I'm your guy. I'm the one that'll take it there. Oh, some gooch. But yeah. So some don't gooch. do that. Don't do that. I think I did like 95 pounds and it was like one of the worst experiences of my life. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's about what I used. It was yeah. terrible. How did we get um, it? <laughs> just, you know, how we always do it. Yeah. We just go. Um, but to, I guess, the takeaway on the question, the actual question that we were asked. So is, what was the question? Is muscle gain, fat loss in nit- positive nitrogen balance a lie? And that's, no, it's definitely not a lie. The yeah. only way that you can be actually gaining muscle is if you're in a positive yeah. nitrogen balance. So it's not only is it not a lie, it's just, it's the only way that that can actually happen. And then yeah. who it can actually happen for is a very specific population yeah. and it's probably not someone who's going to be asking questions for us. Yeah. And just keep in mind, energy balance and nitrogen balance are two separate things. You can yeah. be, you can be hypocaloric as in you're an energy deficit, 
but be in taking more protein than you're excreting through something like the urea cycle, right? Yeah. And you can also be uh, hypercaloric where you're, you're at a surplus, but not in taking enough protein. Um, and then the end result is, you, you know, you're not going to be building new tissue at that point. Yeah. I think, that's, I think that's a problem that a lot of people run into where they're consuming plenty of calories. They don't know what their protein needs actually are. So they're not, especially yeah. in the early stages of training where they're not building as much muscle as they would like. And they're like, well, I'm eating enough. And you have them do a nutritional analysis and they're eating like 45 grams of protein. It's like, all right, well, I'm going to switch some of this over. Yeah, I think yeah. a lot of the people that ask these questions, they're always in this weird place where they've almost kind of exhausted their noob gains. They're maybe like three years into training and things have slowed down. And everyone that has asked me this, they just end up spinning their wheels for like a couple of years before they figure it out. Um, like whenever people aim to do this, lose body fat and uh, gain muscle at the same time, it just seems like wasted time. Yeah, you either get neither or a blunted response for both. <laughs> yeah. you're not you're just spinning your reels not getting anything or you're not gaining as much muscle or losing as much fat as you as you possibly could yeah and paula you brought up a really good point um when we were talking earlier and you know you said that you know whether you're you're at an energy deficit or an energy surplus or you know whether you're building or breaking down muscle that that's not like a state you're in 24 hours a day you're you're, you're going through fluctuations right where you're at a surplus and you're anabolic and you're going through fluctuations where you're at a deficit and catabolic, and it's just the net sum of all those together that's going to dictate what happened for the day in, in terms of the net sum. Uh, but you're having fluctuation, protein turnover ratio is changing, um, you know, constantly with every meal, and as you obviously, the hours after the meal. Yeah, that's always a, that's always the one that makes light bulbs go off for people. It's like, well, I want to lose, I want to burn body fat all day long. It's like, okay, well, you better not eat at all. You better have zero <laughs> yeah. meals today. Yeah, the insulin exactly. spike thing. Um, I think the only other population worth mentioning before we, I guess, leave this question behind is uh, what's always neat, though, is picking up the clients or having a client leave for a while. They fall off the wagon. They quit training. They get kind of chubby and they come back and they're ready to get back at it. The whole muscle memory thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I like to see that. Or the people who come off the androgens for a while, they're off, they stop lifting for like two years and then they come back to you and they cycle back on. And it's like, they just become superhuman in a matter of weeks. Yeah, yeah it's that, that myonuclear domain theory, man. It's, it's, it comes back so much faster than it took to build it. As so, soon as you've strength, expanded dude. that domain. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> no, that's, that's, a, that's another topic that's really interesting. And there's a current question in the literature, uh, you know, are satellite cells, and for anybody who doesn't know, satellite cells are just, you can think of them as muscle stem cells that just donate more nuclei to the muscle. And with that, the capacity for growth goes up. And there's a big, um, you know, controversy. It's like, you know, are they necessary for growth? And I kind of think that's the wrong question. I don't think they're necessary for growth, but I think they're necessary for an increased capacity for growth. Because you can certainly grow a muscle without adding more nuclei. However, once you have grown so much tissue around this nucleus, Right. And, and it really the space for, for everything to travel is just too far. If you want to grow further, you're going to need another hub there to take care of that new tissue. You know, and, and there's some there's some debatable data, but a lot of the debate comes from animal models. And you got to remember, animal animals are not humans. I mean, we're, we're similar to a point, of course, and, and a lot of that research is necessary. But like mice have like, I think, four muscle fibers, you know, uh, cats can bypass the size principle like. There's there's definitely some 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 differences there that, you know, we, we have to keep in mind when we're interpreting uh, research like that, although it's extremely interesting. 
You know what I struggle with? Um, I think it's a lot of the naturals that see that research and they're like, okay, you maintain these myonuclei for several years or potentially your whole life. Um, and then they say that uh, past steroid users have this advantage always because they have these, this extra myonuclei. But I think a lot of, I don't know about you guys, but I've met quite a few people who have come off androgen use and they don't really seem to have much of a benefit. They tend to get weaker. They tend to lose a lot of size. Um, how do you guys feel about that? Like the argument that, and obviously um, if they begin their androgen use again, they blow up incredibly quickly because of those myonuclei and the androgens. But when they just come off completely, uh, it, it does sort of seem like a lot of those benefits aren't there anymore. Yeah, I'll let Ryan, I'll let you kind of tackle that first. I, I have some I, opinions on it. Yeah, so I have, I have some opinions on it as well. None of it is really like, I found this in the literature and it's conclusive. But I think that it returns them closer to their baseline prior to their androgen usage. But I don't think that it ever, unless they completely take off from training, I don't think they ever return all the way back to their baseline. They're still slightly elevated. So if this is where they were when they were natural, this is where they were when they were on androgens, they come off completely and they return here. So they're still above where they started here, but and they're going to get weaker, like significantly weaker than when they were on. And they're not going to have the capacity for growth and strength gains like they used to. But I don't think it returns them back to where they were before. I think that they are still superior than where they were when they first started. I guess it, um, it's hard to – I guess the argument is like whether it's practically, I guess, significant or meaningful, their new elevated kind of baseline once coming off. Like everybody just assumes it's this great, like they're for they're forever at such a great advantage, and yeah, it just doesn't really like anecdotally seem that way, you know? Yeah, I I think that um, there's some things, some context necessary for that question. I, I Ryan, I, I agree with your opinion a lot. So I don't think the question is whether when they come off, if they're building at the same rate, um, they they might be building at the same rate as a natural. Uh, you know, obviously, they're not going to be building the same rate as when they were on. But I think the question is, have they increased their their capacity or their ceiling? Not that there's more nuclei there to handle more tissue when it is built. And I think another thing, um, there's a study that came out maybe a year or two ago. I'm, I'm going to butcher this. But um, so certain parts of your DNA encode for things like actin and, and, and myosin and whatnot. And, and, you know, when you have a, a those, those pathways, those cellular pathways are going to cause these to be obviously, you know, transcribed, translated, and then, you know, end point is you have a bigger muscle, right? Well, it turns out that, uh, so DNA itself actually wraps around these little proteins called histones. And uh, these histones and the DNA itself can actually have modifications to it. Uh, one of them being acetylation and another being methylation. And Think about this. Let's say you have a gene that's being constantly transcribed and translated all the time. It would make it easier for your body to be like, okay, this, this gene is being, you know, obviously used so much. I should make the access to it a little bit easier, right? So that way the, the transcription and translation can be just a little bit more efficient. And what can happen is when you're constantly transcribing and translating, you know, a certain gene, these modifications like acetylation or methylation, that can actually cause the DNA to either bind or unbind a little bit tighter or looser to the histone, making it more accessible for transcription factors. And a really interesting question, I think, is if somebody uses 
anabolics, and obviously they're transcribing a certain gene all the time. Does that make it more likely even after they come up because you've had these methylations and you have these acetylations and obviously lysines and leucines can be attached. Does that mean that even when they come off, the triggering of that gene is just a little bit more efficient and not, not just that, but is it efficient enough to be significant? I think that's the real question. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're talking about a 0.01% increase and in how fast or, or how well you, you transcribe something, it's like, okay, whatever, that's extremely negligible, yeah. you know? And I, I know at least with androgen use, the, um, the rate at which ribosomes will, uh, you know, translate pretty much RNA, mRNA to, to proteins, it does increase, it does get a little bit more efficient. Now, does that stick around afterwards? Is there a difference in the, the rate of efficiency of the ribosomes? Are there more of them? I think it's a really interesting question that would be a extremely hard and unethical to test. Um, but going back to your point, Paul, I, you know, it, it might it might be happening, but it might just not be significant enough to actually impact anything. Yeah, yeah. I guess also I'm more so thinking of it from a bodybuilding perspective, whereas I think a lot of the argument lies in sports and performance. And, you know, yeah. it's easy for me to visually look at, say, a retired bodybuilder, lose a lot of size, go on TRT doses, or potentially uh, even have maybe they decide not to go on TRT and they actually have suppressed testosterone yeah. the rest of their life. And of course they're going to get smaller. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Versus what sort of advantage is left for the performance athlete. Um, so I think that's a good distinction. And did they come off cold Turkey, not taking anything at all, or did they transition onto TRT dosage? Cause the physiological response is very, very different for those two situations. And then another anecdotally on top of that is that, from people that I've known who used to bodybuild, who used to use androgens, who competed at a high level, and then they stopped, they also stopped training or very, very much dialed down their training to where they were yeah. all about it every single day of the week, every meal was tracked, they stopped their androgen use, they stopped bodybuilding, and all of a sudden meals are spotty, they're lifting three times a week, they don't really care as much about their sleep, maybe they're out drinking with their friends now, they're partying on the weekends, so they could live that's, a completely different accurate. lifestyle. Yeah, And so many things are setting them up to be getting smaller. It's only possible to measure this if they live the exact same life when they transition. Absolutely. That's a really good point, man. No doubt. That's all I got on that one. I think, uh, no, I think Jay Walton will be pleased with that answer. <laughs> I think that's, I think it's a really good answer. I hadn't even thought of that, but you know, and it's like, you don't have a controlled setting and we're obviously observing and, you know, observational data has its limitations. Um, but, but like you said, you know, you rarely have someone who peaked and they were doing awesome and, you know, something happens where they have to get off or, or they just for personal reasons, get off. It's like, they're not going to have that same fire because if you're going from adding, you know, 15 pounds on your squat every two weeks to adding 15 pounds every four months, there's, there's not as much, there's not as much incentive to go in there and kick ass when you're like, Oh, you know, you know, two years ago, this, this, these increases were just on the regular, you know? No, 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 that, that actually is a good perspective just because, you know, even looking at like, you wouldn't expect a retired Olympian, like Olympia winner to yeah. give their same effort. Like, Oh, I'm retiring next year. They're not living that life forever. You know, no, things are not. No, uh, not. <laughs> okay. You guys want to roll along to the next question? Sure. Yeah. All right, next question we got is from uh, my client, Lindsay, Lindsay King. Um, she says, what's the best day of the week or time to have refeeds 
and how to position my off days. Never. <laughs> don't take off days. Don't take refeeds. You need to be dieting harder and training harder. Every day, no matter right. what. Yeah. What do you think, Paul? What's the best time to take a refeed? What do you think is the best day of the week? Positioning, <laughs> programming. Tuesday, when, for sure. Tuesdays um, <laughs> at noon yeah. is when you want to start and you want to be done by 2 p.m. Yeah. Why? Because Why not every day. Time. I feel like every day is the best day for a refeed. <laughs> that's my that's my tactic, honestly. That's <laughs> yeah. why that's why Paul weighed in at two thirty one this morning. Ooh, got him, got, got him. him. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I struggle with the, you know, I think a lot of people that I'm assuming, you know, asking about the refeed in terms of when it's the most beneficial for their training. Is that sort of how, how you think this question is coming across? Uh, and, so right now she's in contest prep. So she might mean like fat loss. She might mean training efficiency. So let's try and tackle both. Okay. Well, I mean, just from training, um, man, I don't know about you guys, but anecdotally, I mean, I just, I never really noticed any real beneficial impact of a refeed on training outside of looking cool and getting a better pump for like a day. Like I don't have a refeed, um, four hours before my training, like probably how long is that, you know, does that refeed take to completely digest and absorb and you're actually like utilizing that refeed or even the day before, you know? So yeah. I think refeeds are just extremely, uh, well, like overvalued, overappreciated by bodybuilders in my opinion. Um, and then even from a fat loss phase, uh, all these extra, ca uh, calories, uh, when it comes to a single meal refeed or a single day refeed, they still need to be accounted for. You know, you still need to be in a deficit at the end of the week. And so really, in my opinion, it just tends to slow things down. I think things tend to run a bit more smoothly when you talk about these single day refeeds. If you just don't have them, because I have to factor them in. Like if I give you, when I give you your weekly calories and you're a refeed target, um, if you take a refeed, we're probably going to need some low days to offset that unless that refeed, um, unless your deficit is just so big, you know? Yeah. And then uh, I think where things get a little bit cool sometimes are the multiple day refeeds and those may be beneficial, but I feel like this might not be the question to get into that. I don't know. Yeah. I think the scope of the question is just a single day refeed. Yeah. What are kind of some of the benefits um, so the reason I, I still program in refeed days, um, but it's more on the psychological end of things. It's I have something to look forward to. I don't think that there are any physiological benefits of it. And I have yet to be convinced that there are any physiological benefits of it, because you have to understand that a lot of those extra calories are used to dissipate some of the fatigue that you already have from dieting. You're going to offset some of that and burn off some of that just as heat as you're eating the meal. Like we've all eaten a, a big refeed meal before and all of a sudden you have huge pit stains. That's your body offsetting or putting off a lot of that heat, those extra calories, just in thermic effect of the extra food. And it's like, all right, well, now my argument is that, well, you're going to replenish your glycogen stores. Well, the most <laughs> demanding resistance training session that you're going to yeah, have is going to deplete what? 40, 50% well, at dude, the absolute maximum? Not, 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 not even like 30%. I've heard. You got to kill I mean, yourself to get to 40%. Uh, I was yeah. looking at, I didn't read the whole study, but like, even if you don't uh, eat post-training, you begin to replenish muscle glycogen through like yeah. 
all those like uh, partial. I, was at, I, I think that I was reading. Yeah. I think Menno posted that. He was talking about how the citric acid or the Cori cycle uses some leftover lactate. Post, yeah, yeah Cori cycle uses also, lactate yeah. post-training to start yeah. to replenish glycogen, even in a fasted state. Yeah. I'm yeah, assuming you probably can, like glycerol and stuff too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You, yeah. You can turn it to pyruvate and then work your way back up to, you know, that's the thing about when people talk about like, um, you know, who's the girl who was saying like, oh, you shut down the Krebs cycle. Oh <laughs> yeah. Lane poster. I forget what her name was. Yeah. And, and it's like, this is what people don't understand about metabolism. It is so complicated. It is, it is incredibly complicated. And whenever there's, whenever there's a spot where you try to block something, your body is so redundant in mechanisms for survival that whatever you try to do, whatever you try to cheat, it's not going to work because it has 15 other ways of getting around that, you know, and a really, um, so a really cool example is uh, actually cancer. So, uh, you know, mitochondria and cancer are super defective. Um, So they they don't use the Krebs cycle a whole lot, but they have plenty of other ways. And it's funny because if you starve a cancer of one nutrient, it can actually just bypass that and find another way to grow, which is why it's so, you know, freaking dangerous. Um, It can even produce, like there's a part of the Krebs cycle, I forget, that's blocked off in cancer. And all it does is it just starts producing a bunch of bilirubin, believe it or not. But, uh, but again, people are like, oh yeah, just, just don't eat that. Just don't eat carbs. Don't eat fast. And you'll block this off. Don't worry. There's 50 other ways, you know, and and energy, energy balance is, is end all be all like for sure. A hundred percent. You know what I love, man, you can like Google all these, uh, you know, or like people who are in their undergrad or even where I'm at in my masters. And, and we learn about these, uh, energy systems and you have a chart for glycolysis and you have a chart for Krebs and they're all interconnected. And well, what's awesome is like, we, we have these three charts, but if you like, look at like a full detailed, uh, map out of metabolism, it's like, this is a static of lines. And I'm like, I don't even know how to look at this. Like it looks, it looks like, uh, it looks like a roadmap to like a country because everything's like there's so many interconnections between everything the the only thing and like i'm you know not an expert uh but the only thing i've found and i've never done this i just you know have read and and, um you know obviously through classes and stuff the only thing i've found that can probably hold anything to energy balance and it's still technically not not uh you know destroying the law is um and and i will i will go on the record to say i don't think anybody should take this and i think if you see it you should run the other direction as fast as possible is bmp i'm sure you guys have heard about this you know uh there are some people who are proponents of it and so um and you guys know through your exercise physiology classes that when you eat whatever nutrients pretty much at the very end of oxidation all you're doing is you're just pumping protons into mitochondria and then that pressure and that gradient causes ATP to be made for energy. The only thing I've found that can actually dissipate that is DMP because DMP can go into the mitochondria and start dissipating that proton gradient without making ATP. So pretty much a lot of that energy is lost and you know released as heat without it being used efficiently to make ATP. So yourself even more, even more, even more. But at that point, we're, we're not even we're not even breaking energy balance at that point. You're just moving something so it can't be used as efficient anymore. And obviously, because that's not something your body makes, there's not a way around that. You know. So that is, that what, is that what people mean when they say that DNP, what do they say? It's a, they say it uncouples the mitochondria? It's, it's, it's an uncoupler. And we use uncouplers in the lab. We use, um, 
we use, I believe, uh, CCCP and FCCP when we do uh, mitochondrial respiration in cells. Uh, and, and yeah, because it's, because it's not something our body makes or is equipped to handle, it can completely break that gradient. So you, you, you are literally stopping respiration uh, or you're, you're starving the cell. Uh, but here's the thing. There's a very fine line between uncoupling just a little bit and completely destroying the gradient. Respiration stops. The cell dies within milliseconds. You know, and that's why it's so dangerous. It's not like another drug where you're like, oh, I'll just go to the hospital. You won't make it. You won't make it out of the door. You won't even make it fast enough to close the pill bottle. Like you're just done at that point. Um, and, and, you know, obviously dosages and stuff, but, you know, but that's the only thing I've found that can kind of go around uh, energy balance to an extent. And when, people, when people talk about uncoupling the mitochondria, what does that actually do for metabolism? Because I've heard some reports from DMP that it can increase metabolism by 150 to 200 percent are there is there truth in that it's i'm sure it's dose dependent so i don't know the exact percentages or numbers i know the mechanism of action um so when we're talking about uh uncoupling it means that we're we're removing the the movement of protons to the production of atp so when we're talking about a mitochondria it pretty much looks like this right and you get a bunch of protons into this inner compartment and there's this one little pathway for them to get out and the, the movement of them going through that little pathway actually causes this specific complex to crank. And as it cranks, it moves a phosphate and an ADP together so, so hard, so, so hard that they merge and out pops an ATP, yeah. right? The, the ATP is being made because there's so many protons in this inner compartment that's rushing out, right? Concentration gradients. If you have a lot here, they're going to want to get out. Now, what DNP does is it starts taking protons out without going through that little pathway. So now you've got less protons for ATP, but the cell still needs ATP or else it's gonna yeah. die. So what does it do? It starts taking more fat, beta oxidation, glycolysis, whatnot, to make more you know, FADH, NADH, to pump more protons, but you keep dissipating that gradient, right? Yeah. To me, it sounds like people are trying to equate the fact that, because it, it sounds like it just essentially makes uh, energy production inefficient, like you're losing a lot of what you're yeah. making. And so um, I think people try to more so thinking, think of it as like we're making metabolism faster because they need to eat more. Yeah. So I, I think uh, people just try it like they say increases metabolism 200 percent but they're just trying to equate the increased so, percentage of calories they need to how yeah. much so what's this is, happening. This is, a, this is a really good example. It's going to be a lot easier to understand. Um, so imagine you're driving your car and you're getting 20 miles per gallon. And, and in this example, the gasoline is a fat or, or whatever it is that you use to make substrates to make ATP, right? So imagine that you know every two hours you have to stop and get gas. Well, now I come with a knife and I just go to your gas tank and I do this. Well, now, instead of having to stop every two hours because, because gas is leaving the tank without producing energy for the car to move forward, right? That, that, that potential energy is just being lost, right? What do you have to do? Well, now you have to stop every 40 minutes because you're like, shit, man, what's happening? Like my gas tank keeps going on empty and I've barely done anything because it's inefficient because you're, you're pretty much bleeding potential energy out of somewhere. And, and in this case, you're releasing it as heat. But, but that's pretty much the mechanism of action. And there's actually some pharmaceutical companies that are trying to look at a safe way to produce an uncoupler uh, to treat stuff like obesity, which is super interesting. But at the same time, mitochondrial respiration is so important for life uh, 
that that if you fuck that up, like you're just dead. There's no antidote. There's no time. Like you're just you're just done in a second. I think uh, what really increased because you know um, I've I've met quite a few people involved in bodybuilding that are like, yeah, I've used it. You just you know I don't know why everybody's demonizing it. You just got to use it correctly. But I think the biggest worry is really just that it's dosed in micrograms. <laughs> and people are buying stuff that from margin is that big uh and like you know i i i don't know you know how people you know i tr get their dmp but I, i'd imagine if you're buying it from some dude who is selling it out of his apartment or ordering rods like he's not measuring my yeah. in yeah. his apartment <laughs> without like some serious lab equipment or you know exactly yeah and with the margin of of you know efficacy to death being so small yeah dude i make mistakes in a lab all the time all right <laughs> like you know sometimes it's one microliter and it's two and that will throw off your experiment mm. entirely you know but there's a difference between me being like oh i have to analyze these proteins again versus your body being like oh i guess i guess we're just not gonna survive anymore like you're just done you know there's, you cook your insides part. and then you're dead yeah well you pretty much suffocate them to be honest yeah it's pretty bad it's sad, man. This past competitive year, man, I've I've uh, met a couple bikini girls who uh, hired a coach, and the coach was like, okay, well, you know, if you want to do well, you need to take this, this being DMP, among other things. Uh, yeah. and, you know, the girls kind of, for whatever re reason, not doing their research and just being like, okay, well, I want to win. And then competitive season's over, and they're like, I can't believe I put this in my body with a bunch of other stuff. And they're like, no wonder everything is going yeah. on right now <laughs> yeah that, that sucks man because like and like i get it if you don't know it just seems like a magic pill and like you know obviously the propensity for people to use things to their advantage is high but you know that's why i think like education is so important because if you really know how dangerous it is you're like it's not really worth it you know it's not worth putting your life that close to death just for you know a you know a trophy and i'm just you know a, a admiration or whatnot but yeah um, man education is key um, with the direction that you kind of see bikini going and specifically in the NPC, do you think that it's becoming, cause I've always held the belief that it's never, it's been a division where you actually need any illicit substances to compete at a high level, but with the direction that it's going, these big state shows and especially the national shows, do you think that bikini is becoming a division where it's going to be something like bodybuilding where like, if you're not taking drugs, you are irrelevant? Dude, you know what, man? Yeah, I remember a few years ago, it was very easy for everybody to say, you can compete in bikini and not take anything. Look at the 2010 nationals. As, as short as 2010, look at the NPC nationals. Look yeah. what the girls look like and look at them now. It's not even close. Dude, when uh, we went to the universe for Christina's show, outside of like them wearing different bikinis, like I, w I was looking around. I wouldn't have been able to tell, you know, that a lot of those bikini girls weren't figure yeah like they're getting so lean and they're getting like wow. cap delts like great oh, yeah. cap delts vascularity in the arms vascularity yeah. in the abs you're seeing girls that are so lean and have so little in their stomach that they can pull like a vacuum on stage quad separation Dude, from the back you're seeing the hamstrings pull out you're seeing the glutes completely separated yeah like hamstring separation and shit yep. like yep. it's wild man like, they're seriously, like, pretty close to having glute striations, you know? At, at the last local show I, I uh, went to and had a bikini competitor in. And it's crazy. Yeah. So do you think it's kind of becoming a division where you need some sort of enhancement to compete at that level? 
I think it's shifting in that direction. Yeah, I think they're really kind of just making it downsized figure. Yeah, and I think that's what seems to happen to almost, you know, a lot of classes until they're forced to make a new class. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Like figure is starting to look more like uh, physique. We saw that with uh, with men's physique as well. Like these men's physique guys were just getting massive and they were like, all right, we got to make a new division, downsized bodybuilding. We'll call it classic physique. Yeah. And eventually, like, the only differences between classes becomes, like, how they pose. <laughs> you know? And it's becoming it's becoming a very strange environment where there is no class in the NPC that you can get away without using drugs. Like you, And sometimes like, they're all, you have to be, like, drugs are the toll that you have to pay to get into any of these divisions. And it's bikini uh, more so than a lot of other classes, but... A lot of times it depends on the area and like who's judging the show. Like you never know. Sometimes they they give uh, you know top five to softer girls, but I feel like as more time goes on, more of these top five girls are looking like they belong on a national stage, and then all the girls on the national stage are like strided and crazy lean. So I think I think that does even more of a disservice to the sport than asking everyone to meet one standard. Because when you're at a local show and you win an overall at a local show. You qualify for nationals and you won the local show because you were a little bit softer and then you show up at nationals with that exact same look that won you something at the local level and you get destroyed you get fifth call out because of it i think that does even worse things but yeah i was in i was in miami for nationals and all the bikini girls were shredded to the bone to the bone ridiculous I feel like we see examples of that i mean maybe not all the time but sometimes where you're like damn like this girl should be a pro but she's like so far ahead of everyone and looks so different from everyone it seems like she gets placed lower and it's just yeah i think it's it's an issue that christina has where christina is built more like a physique competitor but because she's not as large as a physique competitor is she still kind of she fits into the size of figure but has the build of physique that's how I feel like when she does her, uh, um, like I feel like when she does physique style posing, like a lot of her muscle bellies and stuff really shine, you know. Yeah. So do you guys think, and, and and you guys would know better than me that uh, that's more apparent at the high level, maybe at the low level, you you can do reasonably well without having to you know delve into much drug use. For sure. I think so. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think another issue too is. A lot of the, uh, because of that, like a lot of females will start lifting and then within like their first year or two decide they're ready to do a show um, Mm -hmm. versus like spending a few years gaining the muscle and, you know, building a physique and then competing. So I think a lot of girls are trying to get on that fast track. So like, oh, I lost to this girl who's been training for like four years. Let's take a little bit of Anavar. So they want to jump the gun and take some Anavar or whatever they want to take. Yeah. Or Clan or. Yeah. Yeah. Those those have started to become like the norm for bikini competitors where it's rare to find bikini competitors who aren't using Anavar, who aren't using a little bit of Clan, who aren't using a little bit of Novadex, just some some milder drugs that give them a little bit of the advantage. Haven't you run into that a lot too, though? Like a lot of girls yeah. will be like, oh, I've been training for like a year. I'm, I want to do a bikini show. Or how was your last off season? I didn't really take one, but I want to use this bikini show to get yeah. back in my groove. And it's like, okay, well. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
prepare to spin your wheels and be at the exact same spot every single year. Yeah, it's like the six months. It's like they split their their periodization is six months getting ready for a show. Next six months doing absolutely nothing. I'm gonna drink, eat whatever I want, barely go to the gym, and then I'm gonna hit you up six months later, and we're gonna we're gonna do this dance all over again. And it gets worse and worse every time because they don't. It does, want to gets harder. Yeah. <laughs> they don't realize they're like, oh man, why is it harder this year? Well, it's because everything you did in those six months after the show set you up to make this way way harder. But yeah. So with that, um, I think there was a question. I don't know if it's on the list uh, that I saw that. What, what do you guys think about employing um, uh, weight maintenance periods between dieting periods, either to transition into a gaining phase or to transition between leaning phases if you have, uh, you know, whether you're trying to sustain a low level of body fat or if you have a lot to lose? Yeah, we, we talked about that one last week. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. Talking about like weight maintenance phases and how to use them. Man, I think that's a skill that I, it's talked about a lot recently, right? You guys hear more and more yeah. about that. I think yeah. it's so valuable, man, um, because I know myself, uh, it most of my, you know, like bodybuilding or whatever has just been alternating between periods of getting too fat and trying to unfuck that, uh, yeah. you know? Yeah, you should be a powerlifter trying to get into like the 198. It's exactly what it's like. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, because it's a practice skill, and I think that, you know, you tend to kind of fail at it many times before you get better at that acquired skill. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think also that when you go come out of a cut with the intention, maintaining is never maintaining. It's just a slower rate. And whenever you go into the mindset of maintain, I think most of the time you end up just kind of gaining at the perfect rate versus I, I agree. going into the mindset of, all right, now it's time to get huge. I'm going to try yeah. to gain a half a pound a week or a pound a week. And then you overshoot that because you're coming out of your cut and you're still having refeeds and your cheat days yeah. and occasional yeah, yeah. Um, and you sort of need those maintenance day, maintenance days in between to kind of control that. And for those maintenance yeah, yeah. days to slowly increase, you know, to Absolutely. offset those. So at that point, it's game tainting. You know, I think that's what Eric Holmes, you know, calls it. And I think that's really good. I mean, so many people are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to start gaining. It's a week passes and, and they have, you know, they've gained 10 pounds. And it's like, hmm. You really just kind of sold yourself short there. That's three months you could have been gaining quality muscle, but now you, you have to cut your gaining phase weeks early. So I, I think, uh, right into my soul. I've switched, I've switched a lot between the, and I put it into practice on myself and my clients a lot, between the recovery diet and the reverse diet. So like the reverse diet, a la like Lane Norton, like his definition of it, like very, very slow, very intentional. One grain rice per week. One, one grain of rice per two weeks, actually, a little slower than that. We don't want to blow up here. We don't want to binge. Yeah, um, true, true. And then I, I think that I've kind of settled in the middle. So yeah. in my early uh, days of like the reverse diet, it was like five grams of carbs and one gram of fat per week. Like that's how slow I was going with it. And I realized that's a little yeah. bit too slow. And then I, yeah. used, and I used a recovery diet where it was like, all right, straight out of the diet, let's add 600 calories right away or 500 to 700 calories right away. And now I've kind of settled in the middle where it's like, all right, why not just be a little bit more controlled with it? Let's not add 40 calories a week. Let's not add 500 calories a week. 
let's add somewhere between 100 to 150 calories a week. That seems to be an amount of food that if the person is choosing the right foods, they're sticking with their like bodybuilding style, like clean foods. Yeah. That's enough of a macronutrient increase to where they can have an extra half cup of oatmeal. And then that really satiates them throughout the day. And they can add yeah, that yeah. every week. I think the foods that you choose and the psycho the psychological state that you set the person into really sets them up for success for failure. Because what I found with the recovery diet was, all right, you're allowed to have 600 extra calories. And the person's like, fuck yeah, I can fit ice cream sundaes and Pop-Tarts and yeah, Oreos, and all that shit that I was missing out on. Ready for it. Yeah, their appetite. Their, yeah. yeah, their body's just not ready for it. And they end up way overeating. Yeah. And then when you set them up on the really, really slow, like late Norton style reverse diet, they're like, oh my God, this extra amount of food is nothing. There's nothing yeah. in the world that can satisfy my hunger. That middle ground allows them to have some extra food, increase their portion sizes, feel a little bit more satiated, increase their productivity and training, move around a little bit more throughout the day and do some other stuff that can actually offset some of those extra calories. So maybe their caloric intake went up 150 calories, but they're neat and their eat went up by 75 yeah. calories. So that's kind yeah, of offset yeah. that. So there's definitely Absolutely. a middle ground. Um, yeah. I know you're, I know you're definitely speaking what like, you? from a general sense and that like, you know, everybody's different and um, you handle everybody differently, you know, depending on where they're at. But I think I, I'm like you somewhere in between is probably a really good way for most people uh with the considerations kind of being how deep of a deficit were they in like if they ended a contest prep in like a i don't know 35 percent or something super deep then yeah. like i probably am gonna give them you know at least a few hundred calories you know i may even try and shoot them up to like 10 percent under a predicted new maintenance off their new body weight potentially uh, versus if somebody ends in like a, a 10 or 15% deficit based off their new body weight, then for sure, uh, I mean, if you bump them up a hundred calories a week, they'll probably be at their maintenance anyway in a few weeks, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, you know, I know there are also specific situations where I've had people that just, maybe um like i've inherited clients that have like through that were under other coaches and they've already been prepping for maybe like 16 weeks and then i pushed them uh for another um eight weeks to get them into their show and then they finish their show and they can't really take neither like either and we try to do it some slower manner and it's like dude I'm sorry, you're not done. Been you can't you can't control yourself. Yeah. I have to bring you to maintenance, maybe yeah, even yeah. slightly above. You know. Yeah. So I um have you either of you guys ever read the book um and this kind of falls in line with this, uh, The Hungry Brain by Stephen Guinette. No, but I do like Stephen Guinette. I just haven't read that book yet. Yeah. So so it, the book's about like the neuroscience of of appetite. And uh, what uh, what kind of clicked for me was I remember maybe imagining this. I don't know if you guys saw it. A couple of years ago, Alberto Nunez would talk about how, uh, like, in the trenches of his of his prep, he would like barely cook his oats so they wouldn't taste very well uh, because it it allowed him to be just a little bit more satisfied. And I you know I used to be of the camp several years ago of like. Uh, carbs are carbs, calories are calories, you know, it's all just energy balance, you know, Pop-Tarts, ice cream and bacon, whatever, and just some protein powder. And um, 
man, it's just really hard to satisfy with a diet like that if you're on a deficit, you know? And it's like, if you had just given me some broccoli and chicken, I would have eaten it and then been like, I don't want any more of this. Like, I think I'm good for this meal. I can hold out. But if you give me like something that tastes good, but I can only have a 600 calorie serving, I'm going to be like, no, I need to eat the entire thing. Um, so I think there's some merit to like, it's pretty boring. I think I made a story about that the other day where I talked about like using a lot of the sugar-free alternatives and the macro hacks and the protein yeah. powder baking stuff. It's like when you're in a very small deficit, that's fine. Sure. Okay. You've got plenty yeah. of calories to mess around. That's completely fine. But when you're deep in a deficit and you're spending an hour and a half in the kitchen cooking one meal using 42 different sugar-free sweeteners yeah. and sauces Fair and this seasoning yeah. and you got to have this amount of egg whites and a half a serving of protein yeah. powder, it just becomes so much where it builds up that food obsession. And like you talked yeah. about, it makes the food so delicious and so palatable that no serving is enough to satiate your hunger. Yeah. And you would have been better exactly. off just going with boiled chicken and steamed broccoli, eating half of it and being like, this is fucking disgusting. I'm done. Well, yeah yeah two things one you know what's like shitty about those foods too a lot of them are like you know require uh what is that stuff called like these guar gums like fibers and stuff and yeah. they make you extremely full and bloated for like 30 minutes yeah. and then you're yeah. starving you just yeah. like you're it's not in your body anymore you just turn it into syrup and it's gone uh yeah. and then uh uh for sure, when you're in a deficit, but I don't think a lot of people realize, like in their reverse diet, um, even if they are near maintenance or at maintenance and there's, they still have these high cravings, that's still yeah. also a time to eat like a bro yeah, and yeah. Not try yeah. and eat like oatmeal cream pies and pop tarts because it, yeah. even though you're at maintenance, like you're never satisfied. Yeah, yeah. You know? so, so what's interesting and the reason I brought up uh, Stephen Guinette is uh, in his book he describes, and I haven't read the studies, um, preface it with that but you know i love this book in his book he describes how certain foods um certain sugars certain things like that can actually not impact the levels of leptin um but impact leptin receptors and that's the other part of the equation like yes how much leptin is in you will affect hunger but also your ability to actually detect that level of leptin you know and, and that's why leptin injections don't work for super obese people they have high levels of leptin. They just can't recognize it. They're, they're, they're leptin just, yeah. They've smashed those receptors for so long that they're exactly. no longer and sensitive to it yeah. anymore. And, and it's in your hypothalamus. And apparently certain, certain foods that you can impact that to an extent where, you know, the circulating level of leptin tells you, hey, you're being fat, stop. But, you know, that part of your brain, the hypothalamus that's supposed to detect that is like, I'm not getting it, dude. Like that, that signal's not being, it's not knocking on the door, you know? I love the evolution of, uh, you know, kind of evidence, evidence, uh, I guess, like what I guess you'd call it like evidence based bodybuilding, how like uh, when if it fits your macros was new, everybody was like, yeah, you can Oreo the shit out of yourself. And we're yeah. like saying like, what yeah. clean foods and, you know, not even acknowledging uh, trigger foods like. And then yeah. we're now we're talking about, you know, these scientific mechanisms and we're like, oh, no, trigger foods are real. And also, yeah. like even if we hate the term clean or like we hate like bro like it's it's starting to mesh where we're like oh we we need these things you know it's the pendulum yeah. the <laughs> pendulum always swings it's always yeah. there's only clean eating wait if it fits your macros you can eat whatever you want fuck fuck broccoli only pop tarts and now we're starting to kind of see it swing back to wait 
that yeah. shit didn't make you very full. Uh, this stuff over here does. I'm going to go back to this side now. So you see that yeah. a lot in training where even with like, we see, I saw it recently with like training programming where it was like bro splits, only do bro splits. No wait, frequency, the Norwegian frequency project. Haven't you read that? Train everything every single day. And then people are like, I'm broken. And now they're coming back to like, ah, oh, maybe we should settle in the middle. So as these huge yeah. pendulum swings go back and forth, it's probably best to just kind of hang out right in the middle of like, yeah, there's a purpose for bro foods. They are very satiating. They are low palatability. Yeah. They will make you full, full, feel full. You won't eat them. And then on the opposite side of that, it's plenty okay to have those those trigger foods or those IIFYM foods. It's like, let's just hang out in the middle where we have a little bit of both. I yeah. love to yeah. the whole, uh, like, people used to make huge distinctions between meal plans and, uh, like, flexible dieting. And, you know, each one would demonize each other where yeah. I feel like everybody or a lot of people now are like, well, they're kind of the same thing. Like Monday through Friday, when I'm in my normal schedule, I tend to eat the same foods most days, take the thinking out of it, even though it's not written on paper as a meal plan, it's basically a meal plan. But then whenever, you know, yeah. the weekends or a scenario comes up where I have a craving, then I fit stuff in and, you know, and then with the yeah, yeah. plan only people, it's not like they're not having cheat meals or, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I think uh, one of the issues is like people tend to think in dichotomies. It's either this or that, here or there. And um, so uh, one thing like, and, and also interpreting research, people think like that too. And one thing my old advisor used to say, is he would be like, you know, if we do a study that shows that that training plan A produces more strength than training plan B, that does not mean that training plan A is the all and all just the way to go. You might've just found the second worst way to do something. You know, like, you know, understand the principles, but, but keep it in the context. And there's always outliers, right? I mean, you give someone a group, a low volume training program, some people in there might've gained more muscle than the high volume group, right? There's always outliers. There's always, and that's where, you know, being a coach comes in. I know you guys understand this. It's like, you keep the principles in mind, but remember it's an individual person, not a robot that you're working with. You know, we have to work within the context of their environment and, and them as a person. Yeah. Absolutely. That's true. I think that uh, that question got destroyed as well. Another 30 minute tangent right there. I hope people enjoy the tangents because by the time we finish these yeah. questions, I'm like, what was the question? I feel like something <laughs> yeah. different. The question was about yeah, uh, best time. 20 minutes ago. <laughs> best time for yeah. a refeed day. What about best time for an off day? So that was the second part of the question. Best time of your week, best time of your training plan to implement an off day. Oh. I always tell my clients, listen, like you're going to have a day of the week where you're, you have to tend to your kids. It's date night with your significant other. You've got a lot of classes that day or whatever. Just fit yeah, your yeah. off day, fit your off day around your social schedule as opposed to your, your, your training social schedule. Because if yeah. you've got one or two days a week where you can fit in off days, you just make it fit wherever. Cause it doesn't really if you've got a solid plan that's say it's, it's five days a week, like you could go those five days in a row if it's periodized correctly. Let's say it's like push, pull, legs, upper, lower. Like you could go straight through that and your training probably wouldn't suffer very much by the end of the week, even if you did five in a row and then two off, as opposed to like two yeah. on, one off, two, whatever, however else you want to structure it. So make your off days fit your schedule as opposed to think that there's some huge benefit from it is always my advice. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think there's any hard lines there. It really comes down to, you know, the, the availability of time for that person 
what they enjoy. I mean, that's something that's overlooked a lot. Um, you know, if you if you're giving an optimal program, but you just fucking hate it, like you're gonna do terribly. You're not gonna do well. But you give a kid who's super passionate a terrible program, and they're still gonna grow muscle. They're still gonna get stronger. Like you know, we see it all the time. Yeah, that's how I used to train when I was younger. I found, I think it was called the Rock Hard Challenge. Oh. So it was pretty bad. Wow. It was straight. It was straight from like muscle and fitness. And the chest day was. Flat bench, incline bench, decline bench, flat fly, incline fly. And the sets were 20, 20, 15, 12, 4, 4 for every single wow. movement. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's why I my entire I've... body is broken. <laughs> Did you get rock hard? Um, I, no. <laughs> flaccid. Very flaccid <laughs> at the end of those. Yeah. I'm pretty similar, man. Uh, when I give my programs, I set off days where I tell them like, Hey, I think these are the best times to take your off days in a perfect world. I like to do a lot of like, um, if it's, if it's a five day split, like two on one off three on one off or something like that, or if it's a push pull legs or something three on one off. And then like you, like, Hey, some shit, like not all my clients are super competitive. And even if you are like, you can afford to push a training day off a day, moving off day around. Yeah. Um, I do generally though, like I try and tell them like, I prefer them not train more than a few days in a row if they can help it. Uh, but that's yeah. most just because of me and what I feel after a solid three or four days yeah. of training, I do start to feel a bit run down, like I need an off day. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did you guys ever um, uh, read the study where, you know, they compared kind of a, a rigid model of training to a more flexible one? And I think they, were, they they weren't, you know, changing like the days in a row that you train, but more so what you're training that day, whether it's more, you know, a power day, a strength day, a hypertrophy day. And, you know, it turns out when you give people a little bit more flexibility, like mm, today I'm going to train, but, you know, I kind of feel like doing a hypertrophy work or, or I feel a little beat up. Maybe I just do this instead. And you see across that time period, the group that was more flexible, obviously accruing less fatigue, um, actually does way better with just having that flexibility in their life. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said about letting the individual auto-regulate their own training, where if they go in there yeah. and they're warming up and it's supposed to be their strength day where they have heavy sets of three and they're like, man, I just, I'm not feeling it today. Like, I'm just not very strong today. Giving them the option to say, hey, you can do some endurance work today or you can do some hypertrophy work today. They get a lot more out of that training session. <laughs> And when they're more rested up going for their strength. Yeah, they're uh, definitely going to get more that's, of that. That's what yesterday, if you look at my program, you'll see yesterday probably should have been, been one of those days because on squats I hit like six and then like three and three. And you guys can hear me bitching about my back all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, one other thing that really frustrates me about this is like I'll get a client and they'll say, hey, I've got six days a week to train. I'm like, all right, cool. And I'll write them a six-day-a-week training program. And they're like, hey – this week I only have five days to train. What do I do? It's like you train five days this week and then day one of next week you do day six of your previous week. And they're like, I hate no, it. I can't, I can't do that. Seven yeah. days have elapsed. Oh, I must yeah. go to my next week of training. That is my body only understands this. My body only understands Monday through Sunday. If it's what outside it, of that. It's like when you're approached with this, they say it in the most annoying way possible. Like they text you and they say, hey, I'm going to start week two over today because I missed a day or two days. I'm like, no, you're not. Yeah. You are not doing that. Uh <laughs> yeah. 
Stupid. I've already gotten I've already gotten questions from people on the website. They'll say like, "Hey, I got a question that said like, hey, the deadlift focus the deadlift focus powerlifting program is six days a week, and I can only go five days a week. What do I do?" It's like you just do it five days at a time, and then the next week when it rolls around, you just do the next day, yeah. and then it, you just keep going. Like, there's no wow. mat. People think that there's like some sort of magic to like, all right, if he wrote six days. days a week, then there it has to be six days a week. And it's if it's five, yeah. I'll just I, it won't work. Yeah, I mean, for for my super busy clients, their micro cycles are actually ten days long. So uh, one full rotation of training is actually ten days instead of seven. You know, and it all takes just a little bit of planning, and it you know, it's not like it doesn't work. It works. You know, as long as the adherence is the most important thing. If you can't adhere, the best program in the world isn't going to do crap for you. So funny story about that. So I rode someone a microcycle that was a it was a nine day rotation. It was a three on one off, three on one off, three on one off, and I sent it to this client. And he did nine sessions in seven days. He did <laughs> he did two two days to accommodate the extra sessions because yeah. and his explanation was the the tab on the Excel sheet said rotation one, so I thought it meant week one, so I had to get it all done in one week. Dude. And I was like, well, listen, I applaud you. That's very impressive that you got that all in. Yeah, but please yeah. don't ever do that again. Dude, it yeah. drives me nuts, man. Uh, I have eight tabs on training, or no, yeah, eight because. Uh, push pull legs off push pull legs off and uh a guy was like hey uh today i'm gonna do legs and back in the same day both workouts <laughs> i'm like no don't do that i'm like what made you think you needed to fit these eight tabs in seven days uh <laughs> so going to that talking about taking from one day and another i had a friend who he was uh the, the, like 2009 2010 he was prepping i don't know a long time ago and uh, he knew that you could like take calories from one day, you know, like to say you under eat a little bit today, take two or 300 calories, add it to tomorrow. There's not going to be really that big of a difference. Um, but I guess towards the end of his prep, he was so, so hungry. What he would do is he would fast for two days and then have a 6,000 calorie day. And I was like, so nice. first of all, that's really, that's really impressive. <laughs> but I don't think it works like that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I think, uh, what, was he like trying, is he a, a, like a physique or strength based, uh, or was he just like a dude trying to lose some weight? No, no, no. He was competing in, in uh, bodybuilding actually, natural bodybuilding, but his, his hunger signals were so strong. He was like, I just, I need a day where I can just go crazy. And I was like, yeah, but those days that you're not eating, you're certainly messing with some processes in your body that shouldn't be messed with, you know? So, so you come into that, you come into that really high day with, you know, some really low, you know, energy expenditure, kind of screwing yourself. I, that is, uh, that's crazy, man. I, I'm wondering if maybe he took that from like the alternate day fasting studies that are tend to be in like obese people and yeah. like competitors yeah. and you're like, Oh, I can that's do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, he was lean. He was lean. He was, uh, like he was damn well under 10%. Uh, it isn't, um, correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't Lyle. Uh, a proponent of like if you have a photo shoot day or something it's like a crash diet that you can do where, where you eat a very low amount of calories i think days, he does the right? protein sparing fasting or oh, yes, mo yes, modified yes. protein spare fasting yes. he has two of them uh rapid fat loss and then there's another one called like erfl or something uh, i thought it was the ultimate diet but yeah oh Ultimate Diet, I think, is some variation of that that he took from, like, Dan du Duchesne. Or I thought the Ultimate Diet was some sort of, like, cyclical ketogenic diet. I think – oh, it may be. I've never read it, 
but I think you're right. I know that those are all distinct ones. We're probably just naming them incorrectly. But no, RFL, it's pretty much like you have a calculation for your, like, lean mass, and that's how much protein you eat, and then you pretty much eat uh, essential fatty acid, like fish oil, and then your only carbs, I think, can come from, like, veggies. Yeah. Like, I think you're right. Yeah. And it's... uh, Yeah. uh, Did you guys read a... um, giving credit to Menno, uh, he posted some article a couple of weeks ago about uh, the satiety effects of protein. Did, did you guys happen to, to read that where he says, you know, after a certain point where you meet your body's protein needs, protein really isn't that more satiating than say carbs or fats? What are you guys' opinions on that? I think I read that, but I didn't, did he link an article with that? He wrote it. Uh, I don't right? I don't remember. I skimmed through it and I thought it was really interesting, but I didn't look into it any further. The problem with a lot of that research on satiety is that satiety is a very subjective um, it is. measure. So it's like, I feed, I, but all of us, the three of us eat 40 grams of protein from chicken breast. We're all going to report different satiety index from that 40 grams. So it'd be interesting to read the actual research that he quoted that from, yeah. because if it's a lot of subjective data, um, questionnaires, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I don't really like the subjective data. I, I, I can't remember if they looked at any biomarkers. There are biomarkers you could look at to, yeah. to measure satiety, but I would imagine. Um, do you guys think maybe uh, your your gut bacteria could probably influence how much of those you know biomarkers are released? The gut bacteria thing is something that uh, I don't know. I'm not super savvy on it. I don't think it's still so new, isn't it? It, it is, and I'm thinking more in the context of actual like appetite regulation. Well, I, my question, because I haven't read his uh, article, I have seen it talked about a little bit. I think some uh, some of the discussion I've seen makes sense, but I should really read it before I say anything, to be honest. But I think my question would be like, uh, like, is this data? Is it on like normal people who weren't eating that much protein to begin with, and then they yeah. eat? they jump their protein up from like 60 grams a day to something closer to like 1.6 grams per kilogram versus like us who are already eating 200 plus grams of protein. Uh, How much more satiating is 300 grams going to be, Uh, especially when you're in a starved state, like where you're in like a 25, 30% deficit, like contest lean. I don't think it helps. Uh, (laughs) When you guys, I think think the most, go go ahead, Ryan. Go ahead. was uh, I was really hungry uh, like after a, a leaning phase and I think I got to 380 grams and I, I I stopped eating not because I was full but I was like I can't eat any more chicken breast disgusting this is just gross <laughs> after my last contest when I was when I had dieted for nine months I think that I was hitting like 470 480 and I was like wow. like I was having horrible horrible like gastro like I had nothing but like diarrhea for weeks at a time i was passing full like full intact food product and i was like all right i'm doing something very very wrong here something is going wrong yeah. in my body so there's well, definitely well, and it wasn't affecting my satiety i was still extremely hungry what was that when you told me you took down like four pounds of cottage cheese a night three pounds of cottage cheese every oh. single night yeah two 24 ounce tubs yeah and it, even like even that wasn't enough i would still wake up in the middle of the night and i was still hungry, hungry. so i yeah. would agree, i would agree that with what paul said if you're going from 500 or 50 to 200 you might you might see an increase in satiety the person might feel a little bit fuller but if you're going from 200 to 300 
or 300 to 400, I really doubt you're going to see any additional benefit. Yeah. But what I was going to ask is when you have clients that are reporting a lot of hunger, like uncontrolled hunger, what's, what's your go-to? Cause my go-to has always been a slight increase in protein with more of a moderate increase in fiber intake. And I'll give you my reasoning behind that protein, because a lot of the research seems to show that increased pro increasing protein slightly will improve satiety. But I have them increase their fiber even more because mm -hmm. choosing different or increasing their fiber is going to force them to choose different food items that will have lower palatability. So they're going to have to reach for more of the vegetables, uh, the whole grains, the yeah, fiber yeah. products that don't taste as good. So then they're going to increase their food or decrease um, their their high palatability food. What do you think about that? Yeah. Um, no, that's kind of what I did to you, Paul. No, I totally agree. I whenever I get that, a lot of times I I don't often give them more protein. That's something I may want to consider, but I do ask them what they're eating, and very often it it's they're still eating stuff like you know white rice, which I love. Yeah. But when you're hungry, probably something like Ezekiel bread is going to be a little better for satiety. Uh, and I try to address it that way, and basically tell them to eat higher fiber foods, more veggies, yeah. things like that. Um, but I think it depends, like, what as far as what I would do, it depends on what where they're at, um, whether they're contest prep, they're, you know, post-diet, uh, if they can control their binging or not. Like, if they're post-diet, they can't control their binging, I may just say, well, screw it, you just need more food. We just need to give you more food. We need to kill this, yeah. you know, if we can, yeah. making them obese. Uh, yeah. And then uh, – and primarily I would generally do it with uh, carbs or carbs and or maybe a little bit of fat. Um, and then, you know, with other people, I mean, sometimes it's just you just got to look at them and be like, you're the one that wanted to do the show. You're going to be hungry, dude. Sorry. Like, we can pick higher fiber foods, but, uh, you know, 30 minutes after that meal, you're just going to be hungry. It's how it is. You know, <laughs> I saw Alberto actually had a good quote about that. He was talking about when you're deep in the end of a diet. You're very, very lean. He said that the high volume foods that you're choosing, that you're eating, aren't actually alleviating the problem. So they aren't actually handling the yeah. hunger that you're trying to make go away. You're stretching the living shit out of your stomach, but the stomach stretch reflex isn't what's causing you to be hungry. It's the fact that you've been in a state of low energy yeah. availability for the yeah. past yeah. four months. And the only way to rectify that problem is like what Paul said, where you just have to increase food. There's just oh, nothing yeah. else that yeah. you can do. I know you're not a fan, but I, I will, uh, if, especially if I can afford it, or I think it's the lesser evil. Um, like if somebody's in a contest prep, I'll give them a diet break where I bring them, um, you know, I give them maybe 10% more food for a week or some percentage or bring them just near maintenance. Uh, yeah. I know you're not a big fan of that, Ryan. Don't put words in my mouth. I'm not a big fan if you don't have the time for it. If you don't have the time to fit something like that yeah. in, if you're three weeks out and the person's dying of hunger and you're like, I'm going to give you a one week diet break. Like, okay, well, you're just going to look bad on stage. <laughs> it needs to be at a position in the diet where you actually have, if it like 10 weeks out, like, okay, yeah, we can do a diet break right now. Yeah. But what yeah. you said about, hey, this is going to be hard. You chose to do this. That's kind of the speech that I always have prepared when it's like two, three weeks out. And they're like, my life is hard. Yeah, I agree. I think for me, <laughs> since uh, the majority of my clients that, I do nutritional coaching with our just general population. I don't have that stress of a deadline to meet with them. I do what you do, Paul. I do, a, you know, I have access to their MyFitnessPal and I'll 
first look at it and I'll be like, Hey, why are you spending 800 calories on corn dogs? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the, you know, if I, if that's the issue, I have them change the kinds of foods they're eating to like way more boring foods. Um, and then I'll increase your protein slightly. And if they're, and if that's not the case, if they're still hungry and they're eating a reasonable diet, then, uh, I, I just do that. I mean, I actually just take them out of a deficit slightly above maintenance actually for like at least four weeks. And usually when they come back, that weight starts dropping off so fast with, with no hunger at all, you know? Um, but it's a different situation with someone who's, who's general population. And I think even if you increase their, and like you said, lesser evil, even if you increase them to a 500 calorie deficit a day for two weeks, okay, they, they'll gain two or three pounds. That is still better than them binging eight pounds in two weeks, which you know people will do. You, yeah. you know what I mean? Like That's very true. Yeah. I think I'm a little more uh, empathetic and loving than Ryan. <laughs> Not me. I don't give a shit about your problems. Get it done. You said you wanted to get it done. You paid me from t to take you from A to B. How dare you even suggest a detour? To We're getting there. Even We're if the wheels yeah. fall off. Uh <laughs> the wheels fall off, I'll push you. I'll be your wheel. Come, come stay at my house. I'll cook your food for you. We'll get you there, and then we're on the when we're on the other side, then we'll bring you back to real life. That's what I need to do the last month of contest prep. Maybe the whole last half is just telling you come sleep on your couch. The show is it? Have Florida. you like chain me to a table at night so I can't like sneak around and get food? Dude, Anthony was talking about <laughs> Anthony was talking about doing that. But seriously, come stay at Camp Squat Father. I'll cook your food for you. I'll uh. I'll get your supplements ready for you. And we'll, it just we'll ends with us in your kitchen, me crying with like food on my face, and <laughs> just me with my totally boot it. on I'm your chest. <laughs> and that was the last we ever saw of Paul. Oh, <laughs> I have some good areas in my backyard where I could for sure bury you, your dead body, and no one would ever find you. I'm pretty confident. Good to know. Yeah. Uh, how long have we been going for? An hour and a half. All right, so let's wrap it up. That's that. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so what are our closing statements going to be? Closing statement number one, go sign up for the website, www.giftedperformance.com. Get your first two weeks free, 100% automated online coaching, 15 training programs to choose from, nutritional programming, check-in features, and access to the lovely three folks that you see in front of you today. Thomas, pour one out for Thomas. He'll be on the next one. I think there are some questions that I think would uh, be more suited for him on the next one. So catch us on the next episode. Stay girthy. Closing statements from my friends over here. Um, I double up on what everything Ryan said. The website's uh, going to be phenomenal. I, I highly recommend it to everybody. Uh, we're all going to be writing for it. It's going to be articles up there where we go more in depth and things that are, you know, you, you are limited by the scope of a podcast. Um, pretty much. So if you're more interested in, in the nitty gritty of stuff, I think the articles will um, uh, obviously be super beneficial to you. No one reads anymore, dude. We need like that's fair. videos. That's, Paul, that's Paul's that's closing fine. statement. No one reads. No one reads. You'll go to your room. You read now. <laughs> uh, I guess now would be a good time to uh, plug the website I've been working on with its own training programs. And I don't know what you guys want me to say. You already... Tell everyone to stay beautiful. Oh yeah, check out the website. <laughs> and stay check good. out uh, stay check stay out good. Paul's brand of coaching, ETN coaching, ETN underscore coaching. 
Is that what it is on Instagram? On Instagram, yeah. I mean, dude, that's just a place for me to post uh, transformation photos. I still use my main Instagram as the Instagram where I inform people. Yeah, Instagrams at the Squat Father, at mTOR underscore e m t o r e. Oh, uh, now it makes sense. I at, oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah. <laughs> at Polly underscore Rocket and at etn underscore coaching i believe yes. uh and then you could find all of us at giftedperformance.com and at thomas neal t-o-tomas t-o-m-a-s underscore neal uh, i think that's a wrap for today all right sounds back good. next time all right let me click stop recording